following message is from New Life Gillette series, Follow Me. This week, Pastor Mike presents part two of this series. Well, good morning. I hope everybody is fully burnt to a crisp after this beautiful weekend. Uh, I know I am trying to paint a deck. You need some sunscreen, just to let you guys know. Uh, so let me say welcome to those of you who are watching online, to the guys over at the prison, to our friends at the jail, those of you who are here in the room who had to find a new seat today. Are you okay? No? Just get all your moaning out right now. There we go. Uh, so we are, in, we are making an effort right now to increase the quality of our online streaming, especially over the summer. More, more of you will be watching online as you travel and things. Um, and then also we're, we're going to be making an effort, and you're going to hear more about this, to reach new people through our online service. So we're making some changes uh, to our online service that will, you'll see some of the changes affecting um, your, our, our stuff that happens here week to week, but most of it will be online. You won't see it. So we wanted to get the, get, get the camera in the middle and you can't put the camera in the middle when you have a middle aisle because everybody wants to see more of Luke back there. So, uh, yeah. So this is how we had to do that. Hey, we are in a series right now where we are talking about following, you know, leadership is all the rage they got seminars and conferences and classes and trainings and books and everything about how to be a leader. But when's the last time you saw a conference about how to be a follower? And the problem is, if you look at scripture and you look at leadership and followership, it is very obvious in scripture that followership is much higher valued to Christians than leadership. It says a little bit about how to be a leader, but more than anything in scripture, what it says about leadership is who's qualified and who's not. Who can be a leader and who can't be a leader. The, the conversation in leadership circles is, is everybody a leader or are you only a leader if you have influence and doesn't everybody have influence and we argue about this? Well, actually scripture pretty regularly says, if you do this, you are qualified to be a leader. If you do not do that, you are not qualified to be a leader. So what qualifies us to be a leader? And step one, if we are going to be a Christ-like leader, is to be a good follower. Well, how do we learn about following if we don't have all these books and conferences and seminars about how to be a good follower? Well, we got really one great source about how to be a follower, and it is Scripture. And so in this series, we're going to look at the biblical model of followership. Because we recognize that leadership often corrupts, or the world says power corrupts. Well, leadership is power. Leadership often corrupts. And the only way to be a leader without letting it corrupt you is to learn to be a servant leader, to follow first, to serve, to surrender, to give, put others before yourself, serve generously. Have you noticed that no one has to teach your kids certain things? Like nobody has to teach your kids how to be evil. That just comes naturally. My mom and dad live with us. And a while back um, when my mom was watching our sons, my oldest son, Lincoln, uh, had done something he wasn't supposed to do. And he's nervous that mom or his grandma is going to tell his dad what he did when he gets home because then he realizes there's going to be some discipline. 
And so Lincoln says to my mom, Grandma, if you don't tell my dad when I'm bad, I'll take care of you when you're old. Nobody has to teach kids how to be evil. It just comes naturally. All of us are naturally evil. But the promise of scripture is that if we will follow well, if we will choose the right people to follow, and if we will follow well, then we will grow, we will mature, we will learn, and we will stop being quite so evil, right? And this is the goal of all of us. So if you have good parents and you choose to actually follow those parents, then over time you will learn and you will grow and you will become more generous and less selfish. The same thing is true about God. Scripture promises that if we will follow well, then it will change us. Remember how Jesus invited his disciples to follow him. He says, follow me, and then what? And then I will make you fishers of men. I will make you I will change you. You're not going to stay the way you were. I will make you fishers of men. Because it would not make sense to go up to some fisherman out on a lake and hey, say, hey, um, do you want to lead the Christians? Hey, hey, fisherman, do you want to start the church? What are you talking about, crazy person? No. So where does he have to start? You're fisherman. Let me teach you a different kind of fishing. Follow me, and by following me, you will learn, you will change, you will grow. I almost never like the King James Version of verses, but this, this is one verse that I like the King James Version uh, the most, and it is because this translation points out two very important things. Number one, following requires movement. I cannot stay where I am and follow you. I can't stay, I can't remain the way I am, yet also become more like you. Following requires movement. The disciples had to leave their nets. They had to leave their tax collector booths. They had to leave their family businesses and stop doing one thing so that they could start doing something else. Something has to change. You have to leave your agenda behind and uh, take up the agenda of the person that you are following. The second thing that this verse points out is that it's God who does the making. In other words, I will make you. God, Jesus says, I will make you. So the leader is the, the molder. We are the clay in the hands of the leader, in the hands of the potter. It is the leader who does the changing. Often we think, if I just try hard enough, if I just, if I just have enough willpower, then I can be good enough. Well, scripture says you can never be good enough. You can try as hard as you want to, and the Israelites did it forever, and they could never be good enough. So what did they need? They needed somebody else to do the making, somebody else to do the changing. So Jesus came and said, I'll take charge. Just follow me, and I'll do the changing. I will do the making. You do the following. So what does that mean about our growth, about our maturity? It means it's not about our behavior. Our growth and our maturity is about our faith, about our ability to follow. It's about belief in the, the correct path. You're leading me in this way. I don't understand, but I will follow. I will have faith. I will believe. And in the following, as we walk in the master's footsteps, we are changed. The experience of following changes us. Today, we're going to look at a very obscure verse in the book of John. 
or passage. And it is a story that has some controversy surrounding it in the interpretation of it. So we're gonna kind of move slowly through this story and see what it tells us about what it means to follow. What, is, what does it look like for somebody to stop following their way and start following Jesus' way? The story is in John chapter five. It goes like this. Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city, near the sheep gate, this is an important detail we'll come back to, near the sheep gate was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. How many covered porches? Five, that's important. So for centuries, historians and skeptics looked at this story and disregarded the book of John because there was no evidence in all the Israelite history that there was a pool of Bethesda. And so they looked at the book of John and said it must have been written later. It was uh, probably made up by some zealot who wanted to make up some stories to make Jesus look good. And so he made up the pool of Bethesda because archaeologists and historians said there's no evidence of this. Well, the reality is if you look at Israelite history, you would, you would see that many people would come into Israel and they would destroy Jerusalem over and over again. And then they'd come and they'd burn a bunch of history. So this is true about a lot of Israel's history. It's just kind of been, kind of been lost. It's been destroyed over time. And so apparently those of us who believe that the book of John is an inspired part of the Bible say, okay, just because historians don't have evidence of it, or just because it hasn't been discovered by archaeologists does not mean it's not true. I will choose to put my faith in scripture. I will choose to put my faith in God rather than the evidence that we have. And that all changed in 1888 when archaeologists found this. It had been undiscovered for centuries. Anybody want to guess where this is? It's in Jerusalem right by the Sheep Gate. Anybody want to guess how many covered porches it has? Five covered porches. Now, for, for centuries, we don't believe the book of John. This is, that doesn't exist, this pool of Bethesda. Until time and time and time again, Scripture proves itself. Trust your Bible. Even the things you don't understand, even the things that science say are incorrect, trust your Bible because every single time without fail through history, it has proven itself to be ahead of the times, to be ahead of science, to be ahead of archaeologists, to be ahead of historians. Historians, It is all accurate whether we understand it fully or not. It's proven. Trust your Bible. And this uh, pool of Bethesda was created um, the way many pools in Jerusalem and in that area of the world were created. It is created by damming up a valley of some kind in order for rainwater to be collected. So they dam up a valley, rainwater is collected in this pool, and that is the story for the pool of Bethesda. And there's a word um, for this type of pool. It is called a mikvah. And in Jewish tradition, a mikvah is a pool that, of water that gathers naturally. In other words, it's not gathered by human hands. You don't have to get buckets or whatever and gather this water. It gathers naturally by itself. In, in December, we're going to actually go to this pool and see 
the pool of Bethesda when we go to Israel, if you wanna go with us. We're also gonna go to Qumran. Qumran is where they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. And if you go to these villages where they would copy these scrolls, they would actually have to create these mikvahs out in the middle of the desert. So how would they do it? They would go up into the desert or up into the mountains and they would build these channels that would channel water all the way from the mountains down into the desert into these pools because they needed a mikvah because their tradition required them to bathe in what they called holy water or living water. And the only way to have living water was to have water that was gathered naturally. And so if you're gonna obey the Jewish laws, then you have to bathe in in living water, which means you've got to create a system for water to gather naturally in the middle of the desert. So they create these giant channels of water out of the mountains that will gather water and create a pool in the desert where they can bathe in a mikvah, a mikvah, which is living water. This is important because the chapter we are in talks a lot about a mikvah just earlier than the story we're reading. So a mikvah, let's review. It is a pool of natural water in which one bathes for the restoration of ritual purity. They called it living water. It's holy water gathered without human hands. So what does it say that God offers us living water? What does it mean to us that God offers us living water? It means that we cannot earn it on our own. We cannot gather it on our own. If God is offering it to us, we can't work hard enough. We can't do enough to gather it. It gathers naturally. A few verses earlier in this passage, um, we see a story where Jesus offers living water to a woman at the well. And this is what he says. He says, those who drink the water I give will never thirst again. It becomes a fresh, this is important. This is earlier than the story of the pool of the Bethesda. We're reading this. He says, this living water will be a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life, giving them, it is a gift, giving them this fresh bubbling spring will give them eternal life. So Jesus here is giving us a metaphor of his gift of grace. Cannot earn it. He produces it and gives it to us. He produces the rain and he creates the pool. So that's the water in this pool. No one is gathering it. It's technically living water. So let's continue in the story of the pool of Bethesda. Verse three, crowds of sick people, pay attention, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. Did anybody catch what just happened? You read verse three, and then you read verse five. Where's where's verse four? I have uh, read quite a few different versions of the Bible. And most of the versions now are taking out verse four from this passage. And it is because it appears that verse four was added later by historians to this passage. Because these manuscripts, these early copies of the Bible that they've discovered, the Dead Sea Scrolls and other early manuscripts or uh, copies of the Bible do not include verse four. 
Apparently, sometime later, a historian came and added verse 4 to John chapter 4. But the NIV is one of the the, um, translations of the Bible that does include verse 4. So let's go to the NIV now and read what the NIV puts in verse 4. It says, some manuscripts include here, so they even clarify before they put the verse, holy or in part, paralyzed, So it adds this part, holy or in part paralyzed, and they waited for the moving of the waters. Then it describes the moving of the waters. From from time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. So verse four is saying the waters are stirred by an angel. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. First water gets stirred, first person to jump in gets healed. This is why all these paralyzed and crippled and and, uh, other people with illnesses are ready to jump into the water as soon as the water gets stirred up. The problem is that this verse isn't in the early manuscripts of the Bible. It, It appears to me that it was added later, and that's a problem because not everyone agrees on what stirs the water. Verse four tells us it was an angel, but if you take out verse four, then we don't really know what caused the water to be stirred. So verse four says it was an angel. So this is the first theory of what stirred up the water that would uh, seemingly heal these people. But the, the Greeks disagreed with verse four. The Greeks attributed the healing power of the waters to natural springs uh, or to spirits. They had dif- dif- differing opinions about what it was. So some people said there's a natural spring under the pool that would bubble up and cause this bubbling to happen that people would then jump in. So this belief was, it was a natural occurrence. Then there was another belief that was attributed to a false god. And they would actually build temples to this false god. His name was, and I'm going to try to pronounce his name. It was the cult of Asclepius. Somebody can correct me on that, but I've practiced, and that's as close as I can get. And they would build these temples to this false god around these pools, and they believed that it was this god who would stir up the water. So there's a differing in opinion about what churns the water. Now, those of us who are Christians read just a few verses earlier in which Jesus says that he will be the source of this living water. That the bubbling up of this water would be him. That he was the source of living water. So let's continue the story. Verse six. When Jesus saw this man by the pool and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, Would you like to get well? Jesus is the king of dumb questions. Jesus, I've been laying here for 38 years trying to get into the pool first so that I could be healed. What do you mean, do I want to be well? I think uh, if you actually look at the original language, this isn't such a dumb question. Actually, Jesus was asking if Hey, dude, are you comfortable? Do you like this situation? Are you okay just hanging out at the pool for the rest of your life? Do you want to continue to put your faith in a pool? Or are you ready to put your faith 
in God. I think in this moment, Jesus is challenging the God Asclepius. He's saying, let's see who's the real source of healing. Let's see who really holds the power to heal. He's challenging this God. And the guy replies, I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool. Jesus didn't say, can you get in the pool? That was not Jesus' question. Jesus said, do you want to be healed? The man automatically replies, something about the pool. For I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. I'm crippled. I can't get in there before these other people. So apparently this guy is still looking at the pool for healing. He doesn't realize that the source of the power that he really wants is standing right beside him. And then he pointed out another problem. He says, someone else always gets there ahead of me. Everyone's looking out for themselves. They didn't have parents to teach them better. They didn't grow. They didn't learn. They, they mature. This guy has been laying there by the pool for 38 years, but some other guy comes with another illness who's not crippled and jumps in ahead of him. He's been here for a couple days, but he is more mobile, so he's able to get in. No one's helping this guy out. Everybody's putting themselves first. Apparently, worshiping Asclepius doesn't make you generous. You need to follow somebody different. Then he says, Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. This guy's, what, what? I thought we were talking about the pool still. Crippled, 38 years. Can you imagine this moment? I want to watch this moment so bad. I want to see the smile on Jesus' face. I want to see the surprise on everybody else's face. And in this moment, we're, we're a little bit going to understand the question, do you want to be healed? Or do you kind of like this, the lazy life by the pool? Do you really want to be healed? It's like asking somebody to stop smoking after doing it for a long period of time. Do you really want to stop? And notice this guy didn't pray a prayer of salvation first. This guy didn't confess his sins first. Wait, Jesus, you can't, you can't heal this guy. He didn't do anything to earn this. You, you got to at least tell him you're God or something. You got to at least witness to him. You can't just heal him. He didn't believe yet. He's still focusing on the pool. But instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. It's a good story. And then all these good stories of Jesus get screwed up by religious people. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders objected. Kind of like we're doing. You can't heal somebody before he's a Christian, Jesus. Rabbinic writing actually say specifically that you cannot carry your bed on the Sabbath. Like they were so legalistic, they had a written rule that you can't carry your bed on the Sabbath. Remember, they took the, the Sabbath law to the extreme. It was no longer about honoring God. It was no longer about getting you rest. Now it is all about appearing to be righteous, to, to, to show everybody that I can be good enough to earn something. That's why they wanted to honor the Sabbath. So these religious people say, to the man who was cured. You can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping 
Matt. So then I'm, I'm wondering, why did Jesus choose to do this on the Sabbath? This guy's been laying there for 38 years, Jesus. You could have done it yesterday. You could wait till tomorrow. Why are you doing it today? He wasn't gonna go anywhere. You could have done it another time, yet Jesus chose to do it on the Sabbath. I think, and we see this in the way Jesus lived his life all the time. I think sometime we need to break a rule on purpose. Every kid in the room, cover your ears. I'm not talking to you. But sometimes in our world, we recognize that a, that a rule is taking us in the wrong direction. It's causing more pain than it is helping people. Growing up in the church, we had all kinds of rules like these. We called the room that we sat in like this a sanctuary is what we called this room. And we had spe special rules for the sanctuary. You can't cuss in church. You can't lie in church. Those are obvious ones. Then you, we went even more specific, like don't carry your mat. We said, don't stand on the altars. You can't drink your coffee in the sanctuary. You got to keep your coffee out in the lobby because the sanctuary is holy. Don't wear your hat in the sanctuary. Or we said in God's house. Don't eat all the communion bread, Mike. Okay, well, that was a good rule because it was good. And we made all these rules that were specific to this room. Why? Because we treated this room like this is where God is. Everywhere else, that's normal. This is the holy of holies. This is where God is. What's a sanctuary? Here's the dictionary definition of a sanctuary. A holy place, as in, as in opposed to the unholy lobby. Or a place that pr provides protection. A bunker. I say that is an absolutely horrible name for a place that you're going to worship God. Now, maybe under the old covenant, when there was a holy of holies, and, and if you wanted to meet with God, you had to go to a specific room, and so that room was separated. That room was holy. But what did God do to the temple? He destroyed it. He ripped the curtain in two. And that didn't even do it. They just put the curtain back. So he's like, okay. And he sends Rome to just destroy the whole thing. That's not our system anymore. We don't have a sanctuary. We don't have a holy of holies. It's gone. This is not God's house. We are not in God's house. We are God's house now. Now we are the sanctuary. We don't want to build some bunker to protect us from the evils of the world. We're supposed to be charging the gates of hell. This isn't, this isn't a hiding place. This is a little huddle that we're going to do before we go out into the really holy of holies where we're going to go do ministry. So I say, let's stop using the word sanctuary. Now, there's, I'm not going to be legalistic about it and say you're a sinner if you use the word sanctuary. But it's, it's leading us in the wrong direction. So, to be a little bit rebellious, because it's kind of fun, I call this an auditorium. Worship is not confined to a building. 
You do not have to come here to worship God. The temple was destroyed. We don't act differently here because God is here. We act differently everywhere because God is everywhere. So I've decided to break some sanctuary rules. Like my kids were running around in this room earlier in a way that I wish none of you could ever see because I'm embarrassed. I'll wear a hat in the sanctuary every once in a while. Just say, you know what? This is in a different place. We are God's temple everywhere we go. And I think that's why Jesus healed on the Sabbath. I think Jesus was just saying, listen, your rule, it's dumb. Don't carry your mat on the Sabbath, ridiculous. We're gonna break that one on purpose. But he replied, the man who healed me told me, pick up your mat and walk. It was Jesus. And then he says, then the religious people say, who said such a thing as that? They demanded. The man didn't know for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. He didn't even, he wasn't a Christian. He didn't even know the guy's name. He didn't know Jesus, who Jesus was. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, now you are well, so stop sinning or something even worse may happen to you. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus. I know who it was now. I met him. It was Jesus who healed me. I found him. I thought the power was in the pool. I thought the power was in Asclepia. But I found the man who really had the power. The one who could actually give me what I had been waiting for for 38 years by the pool. Years ago, my family went to Disney World. Uh, It was a blast. Before we get there, I'm terrified because... I'm a huge roller coaster guy. I love roller coasters. Grew, grew up going to World of Fun, Kansas City. And we'd ride roller coasters. And I was nervous that I was going to have sons who didn't like roller coasters because then I'd have to get new sons. And so we go to Disney World and first roller coaster ride happens. And I'm like, oh man, is he going to like it? We get on the first roller coaster. He's all excited. Okay, you haven't hit the first hill yet. We hit the first hill. Lincoln loves the roller coaster. And so that just makes Disney World an absolute blast. We have a ton of fun. And we're standing in line um, our second day there. We're standing in line at the Peter Pan ride in Disney World. That is a gigantic line that I never recommend anybody standing in because the ride is actually quite boring. So we're standing in line at this ride and Darcy and I are talking and you know the crowds in Disney World. It was just people everywhere. And we're talking until all of a sudden I look down and realize Lincoln is not standing where I thought he was. You ever felt that before? Every parent in the room, just their heart, your heart. <sighs> Shallow breaths and your heart starts pounding. It's no big deal. Just look around a little bit, start looking around for a second. And the heart rate is getting faster and faster and faster because we are in a giant crowd of people. I can barely see my wife who's standing this close to me. Where is my son? So we start panicking until a little Hispanic kid who I don't think spoke English tapped on my leg and said, he ran. And I ran. In whatever direction he pointed, I started running 
And you know how when you run through a crowd, you're polite? No, not when you've lost your child. I was shoving people out of the way. I was looking like a total idiot because I've lost my child. And I'm pushing people. I'm doing everything I can to fight through this crowd to get to Lincoln. Eventually, after getting through that little bit of a crowd, I see Lincoln standing by a tree off in the distance. And I'm continuing to force my way through the crowd and I get to Lincoln and he is sobbing, crying uncontrollably. He had been lost and he knew it. I said, Lincoln, why did you leave? And he said, daddy, you left me. I said, I didn't leave you. Your mom left you. (laughs) No, (laughs) I didn't say that. And we had a long conversation about what was going on and, and why, why did he walk away? Apparently, there was another guy that looked a lot like me, not as good looking, but a lot like me. And he had seen this guy thinking it was me. And he started running after this guy until he caught up to the guy and realized it wasn't me and then lost it. Now, to this day, I get a little bit angry thinking about who was the guy who some kid tapped on and then just said, leave me alone and walked away. I get a little mad at that guy. But then I start thinking, this is us. This is how we live our lives. Running after so many things that we think have the power we want, that that we think have the relationships that we want, that we think have the answers that we want, yet we run after the wrong thing so many times. And then once we realize whatever it is that we've been searching for, whatever it is that we've been fighting for doesn't have the answers that we want, and then we have no ability to get back. There's no way Lincoln is finding his way through that crowd to get back to the Peter Pan ride. So what can he do? All he can do is cry, is just stop, is just start looking around and stand there. So what did he need? He needed somebody to find him. He needed me to get to him, to rescue him. This is the man at the pool. He's looking in the wrong direction. And by this time, he knows that pools. It has no answers for him. Even if it could heal him, he can't get in. It's not the solution he's looking for, but he's got nowhere else to go. He needed Jesus to find him. You need Jesus to find you. I don't know what it is you've put your hope in. I don't know what you trust. I don't know what you think is going to give you fulfillment in life. What addiction that you keep going after thinking maybe eventually it's going to fulfill you and you know it won't, but you just can't say no. I don't know who it is that you, what relationship you're pursuing that you think if you could just be in that relationship or if you could just have that connection with somebody, then that would solve all your problems. The answer to all of these false gods is no, it won't fulfill you. Now God puts certain things in our lives for our enjoyment and he puts certain things in our lives for our, for relationships. But what we really need at the end of the day is our real dad, our heavenly dad. Without it, you're an orphan spiritually. Without it, you are an orphan eternally. You need to say yes to God. 
There is somebody here today or somebody watching online today who says, I've been chasing the wrong things. I've been looking for answers in the wrong place. And if you're discovering that, you have to know that Jesus Christ is the power, is the relationship, is the strength, is the hope and peace you are looking for. So say yes to him. Give your life to him. He's offering you a free gift that you cannot earn. Say yes. So I'm gonna pray a prayer. And my invitation to you is to not, these aren't some magical words. You gotta say the right thing if you wanna be a Christian. Have a conversation with God. And it can sound something like this. God, I, I realize I've been running after the wrong things or I realize I'm a sinner. I realize I've screwed up. God, will you forgive me? I wanna be a Christian. I wanna be your child. I wanna be adopted into your family. Will you give me new life? Amen. And you pray a prayer like that and it will change your life forever. That doesn't mean everything's gonna be perfect and your life is gonna be easy from there on out. Maybe you've got an ailment that you want to be healed and it may be healed or it may not, but it'll give you eternal life. It'll give you a relationship with your eternal heavenly father. If you're ready to make a commitment like that, there is a card in the chair in front of you or you can click on the link that's on online right now and let us know you're making that decision. to Say yes to Jesus. Would you fill out that card? It says, I have decided, fill it out. We wanna send you some information about some next steps that you can take. We're gonna add a light bulb up on this wall to say uh, that you made a commitment to follow Christ. A lot of people have added their lights up there this year and we're gonna try to fill up that wall. So make a commitment to follow him. God, we give you ourselves. We surrender to you. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name.